in the process of studying the Gospel of Mark. And if you would, you can turn to Mark chapter 3. As we have said before, Mark's is a very fast-paced gospel. He doesn't spend a lot of time on details. His theme is to present Jesus Christ, the servant, emphasizing the servanthood of Christ. And so Mark doesn't spend a lot of time with discourses and gives us very few parables because really, with regard to a servant, it's more important what a servant does than what he says. So Mark is very, uh, very interested in actions. And so his gospel is very quick and uh, moves along rather quickly. And uh, Mark is just right in the process of, of uh, chronicling uh, Jesus going about doing good, as uh, Peter said in the book of Acts. And chapter 3, verse 1 says, And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. The Pharisees were now after him. In the beginning, it was just passive curiosity about Jesus Christ. But the more he's presenting his good news, and the more he's backing it up with the works of the Messiah, and the more people are beginning to follow him, uh, the more the Pharisees are beginning to grow more and more uncomfortable with him. In fact, as we're going to see tonight, they pass a point where it's no longer just uh, any kind of animosity. It's now becoming a boiling hatred. They're going to begin to now plot to kill him. And really, it all revolved around the fact that Jesus Christ was, in their mind, defiling the law. He was, uh, he was teaching heresy. Uh, you know, the Pharisees consider themselves the purists of Judaism, the ones who were only really keeping the law. Everyone else was not keeping the law. Only the Pharisees were. In fact, the word Pharisee means the separated one, see? And they had basically separated themselves from society. They were no longer concerned about people. They had elevated their religion and their interpretations of it, the Mishnah and the Talmud, to a place of, um, of worship, basically. Uh, their religion became an object of worship, and they lost completely the sight of the fact that it was designed to reach out and to help others. Uh, Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. Uh, God wanted to use them to be an object lesson to show other nations that if they would obey the Lord and make Him their God, that He would bless them and make them also a special treasure above all the peoples of the earth. But see, they misinterpreted God's intentions. They thought God chose them because they were better than anyone else. And the Pharisees took this to the extreme. And they began to take the law, and they began to interpret it in a very legalistic, uh, very... Um, convoluted way it was really twisted I mean it got so confusing that and they were the only ones who basically understood it everyone else I mean was in the dark they had made the law such a a burden such a uh, such a, a thing that was just a, a, a yoke around men's necks that nobody thought they could be saved because the Pharisees alone were the only ones that were keeping the law 
That's why when Jesus said to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the Jews had a saying. If only two people made it into heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. Because in their minds, they were conditioned to believe these were the only two groups that were keeping the law. But the Pharisees had lost sight of the fact that religion was supposed to give them a heart for people. It was an expression of God's heart. And God is a God of compassion and mercy and love and kindness. And he wanted the law to, to, you know, to be that which would cause men to express the character of God towards others. The Pharisees had taken it, though, and perverted it and made it a God unto itself, an object of worship. You know, they had all these, these interpretations of the Sabbath, what you could do, what you couldn't do. And they had interpreted the Sabbath to mean that you could only save life on the Sabbath, but nothing more. In other words, if somebody was bleeding to death, you could put the tourniquet on and stop the flow of blood, but you couldn't wash the wound, you couldn't dress the wound, you couldn't do anything to affect healing, because that was wrong, that was doing work. You couldn't heal on the Sabbath, you could save life, but you could do no more. And it was really tragic. I mean, the way they were interpreting the law, the law was no more, uh, you know, there to help people. There was no mercy or compassion attached to their uh, approach to the law. Uh, it was all designed to just kind of be there for men to worship, an object of worship unto itself. And they had lost all sight of, of compassion and, and human need. The law superseded any kind of human need and suffering in their minds. And it was really a tragedy. And I think when Jesus looked at them and said, Is it lawful, verse 4, on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, I think he was being a little sarcastic with them. You see, he knew their hearts. He knew their hearts. He knew, and I kind of feel that they planted this guy there. They planted this guy with the withered hand, as we're going to see in a moment. They understood the character of Christ. And I believe they planted him there, in the hopes that Jesus would do good so that they could ultimately do evil to him. And he knew their hearts. And he was basically saying to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Now, it's never lawful on the Sabbath to do evil or to kill. It's never lawful, period, to do evil or to kill. Assuming, of course, that Jesus is talking about unwarranted killing. Obviously, the law covered certain crimes that carry capital punishment, but we're talking here about uh, an act of, uh, of aggression towards somebody else. Uh, and Jesus, knowing their hearts, was basically saying to them, you know, you want me to do good so that you can do evil to me. I mean, what is, who is really keeping the law and who is really breaking it, guys? You see the point? They were so blinded by their, their theology and so zealous for their law that they couldn't even see how hypocritical they were. They actually wanted to, were hoping that Jesus could, would do something good for someone, that they could use it to do evil toward him. They were hoping that he would save this man in a sense, making him whole, that they might kill him. See, because in their mind, he was breaking the law. He did good. They didn't see that the evil in them wanting to do evil on the Sabbath day, who was really keeping the law and who was really breaking it, is what Jesus was saying to them. In Matthew chapter 12, there's the parallel passage. Matthew 12, 9, Now, when he had departed from there and went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? Then he said to them, What man is there among you? See, Matthew gives us a little more. What man is there among you who has one sheep, 
and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out. How much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And when he did it, it was made whole like the other. You know, there's something very twisted to me about any kind of theology or any kind of philosophy of life that places more emphasis on the good of animals than on people. Now, he was basically nailing them for their hypocrisy. Here they didn't want Jesus to do good to this man on the Sabbath day. They would have rather have seen him remain crippled. But Jesus said, but which one of you guys would have an animal that would fall into a ditch you wouldn't pull out on the Sabbath day? You would do that kind of work. Why not heal this man on the Sabbath day? See, not only they had they gotten out of touch with uh, with people and had lost compassion for people, but it seems like they had more compassion for animals than they did for people. I get very upset. I get very upset at people that have more compassion for, we'll say, animals than they do people. I, I cannot understand the thinking that says it's okay to kill unborn children, but God forbid we should kill the whales. You know, save, and I've seen this. In fact, I've said this before. I saw on a bumper, a back bumper of a car, two bumper stickers. And I, I've always said you can learn a lot about people from the bumper stickers they have in their car because it kind of succinctly sums up where they're coming from. On the one side, it said, keep abortion legal. On the other side, as God is my witness, it said, save the whales. How twisted people's thinking can be. Let's save the animals, but, you know, let's go ahead and murder the children. Uh, I've said it before, there's legislation that was they're trying to get passed that if you were to, to purposely uh, uproot endangered species of plants, and some of them are just mosses and things, or kill some kind of an animal on the endangered species list, you could get uh, up to a $25,000 fine. And yet the, the government also wants to pass legislation that the government would pay for abortions. So you can't kill certain kinds of mosses and funguses and small little insects and other little animals because the government won't allow that. You'll be fined heavily, but they encourage you and we will even pay for women to have an abortion. See, that, that to me is very twisted. It's, it just kind of shows where we're coming from. We've, we've moved away from God and, and we're seeing the craziness of it all in, in the way we think. We're, we're a nation that's calling good evil and evil good. But anyways, one thing I have to say, though, getting back to Mark chapter 3, one thing that is interesting to me, and think about this, the Pharisees seemed to understand Jesus better than his own disciples did. They knew that he was going to act a certain way. That's why I believe they planted this guy there, because they knew that Jesus was very predictable. Well, how did they know he was predictable? Obviously, because he had a, a pattern that he always adhered to. There was a consistency in his life. They knew he was a compassionate man. They knew that he was drawn to human need and suffering, that he couldn't just sit there in the presence of human suffering and need without wanting to alleviate it. That was just his character, his, his personality. And they were hoping that he would heal this guy, not because they cared about the guy, unfortunately, but because they wanted to hopefully catch him in the act of doing some good thing that they might use it then to accuse him of being a lawbreaker. Well, he violated the Sabbath. He didn't violate the Sabbath. He had violated their concept or their interpretation of Sabbath law. But you see, at least you have to give them this. They 
knew the character of Jesus. In fact, they were banking on the fact that his compassion would kick in, that he could not just sit there, that he would be drawn to the person in the synagogue with the greatest need, and he would want to do something to alleviate that need. And it was because of that predictableness that allowed them to formulate this whole plan, which just worked like clockwork, because Jesus did exactly what they thought he would do. I see in that something that I think is important for us to learn from, and that is this. Jesus was very consistent in his, the way he lived. He was very predictable. He was very faithful in the way he represented his Father. And I think that that has to be something that we bring into our lives, consistency. Do people know how we're going to act? Do the people around us who know us, is there a consistency there with regard to our witness that causes them to know how we're going to react or respond in a given situation? I think it's good. I think it's good at work. When you walk in, everyone says, oh, shh, don't, t don't tell this story. You know, so-and-so's here. Uh, they're, they're a Christian. They're, they got religion. I don't care what they say about you. They, they know that your light is shining. You've, you've communicated to them by the way you live. You know, that, that's not something you're into. There's a consistency there, you see. It's not when you're with people in the church, you act one way. When you're with people in the world, you act a different way. There's not a kind of a hypocrisy or a kind of a, uh, you know, hot and cold kind of a witness. It's consistent. These guys knew Jesus was consistent. They knew his compassion, that he was a compassionate man. And they were hoping he would do something good that they might catch him. Now, Jesus walked in, and uh, he saw the man with the withered hand. And he knew their hearts, but he didn't care if this was a trap. He was only concerned about this man. And so he tells him to step forward. Now, he brings him out in front. See, he is going to not heal on the QT. He's going to make this a public thing. And he brings the man out in front and says, step forward. And then he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil, to save life or to kill? And they kept silent. But when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their heart. Interesting in the Greek, the word anger is in the aorist tense, which means it was momentary. See, Jesus at times got angry, mostly because of the hardness and the sinfulness of people's hearts. But the word grieve there is in the present tense which denotes a continual action. There were times when he got angry, momentarily, but he grieved constantly. He was in a constant state of grieving over the hardness. He, Jesus Christ loved the Pharisees like he loved everyone else. He wanted them to get saved too. He was grieved, really, at their approach to the law and to people. And yet... It didn't do any good. They were so hardened in their position, so blinded to their own sin that, uh, you know, that at, at one point it just says that he pretty much gave up on them because they, they could no longer believe. Their hearts had been so hard, it was it. There was no more hope for them. They had passed the point of no return. We'll talk about that more next week. But I just want you to see here the thing that Jesus seems to be grieving over, angry about, that these guys had allowed their theology to become such a god to them that they were willing to keep this man from experiencing the power of God. Think about it. Here's someone that Jesus wanted to heal. You would think that they would have been happy about that. They, they would have been rejoicing that this man was going to be made whole. 
but instead they dared him to do anything on the Sabbath good because their theology said you can't do that, that's wrong. And they would have rather have kept this man from experiencing the power of God in his life and being made whole than to, God forbid, violate their theology. And that really grieved Jesus constantly and it angered him in particular in this incident. It's so hard. Uh, he, he was so upset with the hardness of their hearts. You know, and he was grieved back then and angry, and I think he still is today, at many churches and church leaders that do the very same thing. They try to keep people from experiencing the power of God because of their preconceived ideas about how God works and their theological views and interpretations of the Bible. It's a tragedy that some people would actually keep people from receiving Christ and being set free from whatever they have that has them bound because, well, it doesn't, you know, God doesn't work that way or God doesn't heal anymore because my theology says that, that's over with, or God doesn't save that kind of a person, or you have to dress and look a certain way before God can really work in your life, or, you know, and where the church is elevated to a place of worship, kind of like what the Pharisees had done with Judaism, that it's no longer there to help people to come to know God and to be set free, but it's there to be worshipped by the people. You know, when the church becomes an object of worship, then it really has, has missed the whole point. It's lost sight of its mission. It's no longer out there helping and saving people. It's become a, a place of, of worship in and of itself. I read some time ago this little um, story, but I think it kind, of, it kind of hits home with what we're talking about tonight. It's called a life-saving station, and it goes like this. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members and they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they now used it as sort of a club also. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin, and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was in chaos, so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. 
Some members insisted upon the life upon life saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of all those various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life saving station down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the sh that shore. Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. And I think that that kind of sums up where the church, and, and it goes back to the Pharisees too, where the church and theology of the denomination has taken such a place of prominence that it's become a, an object of worship in and of itself. People are no longer seen, uh, you know, people are no longer the issue. There's not a desire to really help people or reach out or help them to experience the power of God in their lives. They pretty much exist to support the church, to worship the church and its clergy and whatever else, its theology. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a sad thing. It's a very sad thing to see it. And these Pharisees were a classic example of this very thing. And so he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians, who, by the way, were bitter enemies, but they found common ground in their hatred of Jesus. So they partnered to kill Jesus that they might destroy him. Let's think about this guy with the withered hand for a second. Here's a guy who is not completely whole. He's got a withered hand, a hand that won't work. So he's not completely whole. Jesus comes up to him and says, stick out your hand. Well, he can't really stick out his hand. It's crippled. It's withered. Now, he could have said to the Lord, I can't stick out my hand. It's withered. It's crippled. What are you talking about? Are you mocking me? What? You see, I can't move this hand. He could have given Jesus excuses why he couldn't do what he was asking him to do. Or he could have showed him the good hand and said, well, it's withered, Lord, and I've accepted it, but here's the good hand. I can use this one. And I thought to myself, you know, we do that. Jesus Christ wants us to be completely whole, spiritually speaking. He doesn't want the flesh to have any power over us. He doesn't want any part of our walk with him withered in any way. He wants us completely healthy, completely free of the devil's influence, walking in the spirit with all the fullness and the blessing that comes with it. And when he comes to us, and he will come to you, and he will see that there is a part of your life that's withered. It's not working right. Maybe it's you're in bondage to some habit that you just can't seem to get free of or something is going on that's hindering your walk with God and Jesus comes to you and he points to that withered area of your life and says stretch it forth I want to heal it and you know what we do oftentimes at that point we tell the Lord all the reasons why we can't do that Lord I can't be free of this I've tried I, I, I can't quit smoking or I, I can't quit drinking I can't lose weight you're, you're asking me to, to stretch it forward I can't do it I can't give it to you it just, I just, I've tried, I just keep failing. But look at all the wonderful things in my life that are going right, Lord. Look at all these areas. Yeah, that's great. But the Lord isn't concerned about what's going good. He's concerned about what's, what's not going so good. When Jesus gives a command, don't you know that with the command always comes the enablement to obey? 
The Lord never gives us a command that he doesn't ex- realize we can't fulfill, we can't keep. So he, needs to, he, he always realizes that he must give the power, you know, to, to obey. In John chapter 6, when he came to the man who had been crippled for 38 years, was on his bed there by the pool of Bethesda, and Jesus came up to him and says, hey, take up your, get up, take up your bed and, and walk. The man could have, give him, could have given him excuses too. He said, well, I, what are you kidding me? I I'm crippled. I can't get up. No, but when Jesus gave the command, this guy willed to keep that command. And as he willed to obey and tried then to obey, God supplied the power for him to obey. And he got up and walked. The man with the withered hand stretched forth his hand. See, here's the thing, guys. I believe the Lord wants all of us to walk in wholeness, in fullness, you know, of the Spirit. He doesn't want any area of our lives to have dominion over us. He didn't set us free 80%, you know. He didn't heal us 75%. He wants to heal us completely from all the effects of sin and Satan and so on. And he realizes there's things in our lives that we have no, we have no power to be healed. We can't do it. But if you're looking at something in your life that is not right, that has just had you bound, that's caused you to be kind of withered in this one area, he is telling you today, stretch it forth to me, give it to me. He doesn't want excuses, he just wants you to will to do his will. By faith, stretch it out and let him take care of it. Something to think about. Jesus wanted this man whole, as he does all his people. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Adumea, and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him, lest, uh, because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. And, and Jesus seems to have done this on different occasions, where the crowd was just pressing in on him so much that he actually would get into a boat and row a few yards off ashore, and then he would speak to them from the water. He would have some breathing room, and they would just line the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he would speak to them. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him, and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So, you know... Get the picture here. People are coming from everywhere now to hear Jesus. Some of them, I mean, their motives are not completely pure. They want to see the miracles. They want to get, maybe get healed. Uh, some of them were thrill seekers. We know that. Some of them really weren't true followers of his. But um, And he knew that. And eventually he would send them away. But right now, multitudes are coming from everywhere. North, south, east, west. They're, they're coming from all over, and many of them are, uh, well, they're all being healed, and various demons are being cast out and all, uh, and I'm sure a lot of these people are becoming true followers of Christ. The ordinary folk, the commoners, strangers are coming and re- benefiting from him. The religious establishment, they're plotting to kill him. But it's interesting to me how that we see two groups, those that are drawn to Christ and receive from him, and those that want to kill him. And it's not too different today because Jesus Christ has an effect on people. It's very difficult to remain neutral about Jesus Christ. You can't really 
you know, walk the fence with regard to Christ. Because all throughout the Gospels, we're going to see that he forces you to make a decision as to who he is and what you're going to do about him. But he has a way of, of polarizing you into one of two groups. Those that are for him or those that are against him. And he basically said that if you're not for me, you're against me. Because there is no really no neutrality with Jesus because he was a radical. And the things he said were so radical that you either, yes, I believe it, and I accept you, Lord, or no, I don't, and I want to crush you. I want to stamp out the message. I want to just destroy the messenger. But that's the, the effect he had on these people. But many are being blessed. The demons are being cast out, and they're bearing witness to who he is, but he's telling them, shut up, you know. Don't say anything else. You know, he warned they should not make him known. Why? Well, again, he didn't want Satan advertising who he was because that's not what he was about. He wanted men to come to that conclusion on their own because of their, their, their heart was, was right and wanting to know the truth. And it says, He went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Now what he's doing here, he's taking twelve disciples and making them apostles. It says here he went up though to a mountain and there he called to him those he himself wanted and they came to him. Now very simply on a practical level we know what he was doing. He was choosing out from his many disciples twelve to be apostles. From a spiritual standpoint, it's interesting because this is kind of a picture of sovereign election, basically. In the scriptures, mountains are oftentimes used symbolically to represent kingdoms. Remember in the book of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar saw the image of this 90-foot polymetallic image uh, of head of gold and uh, arms of uh, silver and stomach and thighs of brass and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay, and it represented the various kingdoms that would rule the earth, the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the final world kingdom that we're coming very near to see the establishment of, which would be in power at the time of Christ's return. And then as Nebuchadnezzar saw the image, he saw a stone not cut with hands came and it struck the image in its feet and the whole thing crumbled and turned into powder and blew away. And the stone became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. And when Daniel gave the interpretation, he interpreted the various kingdoms and various periods where these kingdoms would rule over the earth as the world governing uh, entities. But then he said, in the days of the last kingdom, the toes of iron and clay, uh, the ten nations, Jesus Christ would return a stone not cut with hands, virgin born, that would strike the image in its feet and this stone would grow into a, a, a mountain that would become his kingdom that would fill the earth. So the mountain is symbolic of kingdoms oftentimes. In the book of Revelation, you see that quite a bit too. So here we see Jesus in his kingdom. He's choosing those to come to him. See, it's a picture of election, how that God has chosen those who would be his. And if God chose you, at one point he calls you. But when he calls you, you respond, and at that point you get justified and eventually glorified. That's what Romans chapter 8 talks about. Those we predestined, those he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. You can't be predestined without being glorified. You can't be called without being glorified. 
In other words, you can't be saved and somehow fall into the crack and never reach glorification. If you're, if you're a Christian, you will be glorified. Not because, you know, you're so good or I'm so good, but because when Jesus chose us, he also promised to keep us and to his faithfulness. But he's calling now. He says here, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and, he, and to have power to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. He didn't choose these guys because they were worthy. He didn't choose them because they were really gifted. He just chose ordinary guys. And John, in John's gospel, Jesus said, I, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. I mean, none of us initiates salvation. None of us seeks after God and we find God and God says, all right, you found me. I'll accept you. <laughs> Bible says no one seeks after God. No one. God is the good shepherd who goes looking for lost sheep. He chose them. He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you and ordained that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. I called you and I've called you for a purpose that you're to go out and bear fruit. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, that not of ourselves is the gift of God, not the result of works, lest any should boast. And verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has foreordained that we should walk in. I mean, we've been saved for a purpose. In contrast to Paul's remarks earlier in Ephesians 2, where we were once children of the devil, children of wrath, we were floating downstream with the current of the world going nowhere, basically. But Jesus Christ reached down, he saved us, he, you know, he, by his grace, he made us his children, and he's given us a purpose. And that purpose is that we are to do good works. We are to walk in good works, to represent him like he did as he went around doing good. And so these guys have been chosen by the Lord for good works. And notice that he sends them out that they might do what? Preach. So he called them to himself that he might ultimately send them out. Now, that's really what it's all about. You get saved to go out. It's not like the Pharisees, the separated ones. You know, God doesn't just call us to Jesus that we might live in monasteries and cloister ourselves away from all the other people. No, no, that's not what God wants. He calls us to himself that he might ultimately send us out to preach the good news. These guys were disciples. The word disciple in the Greek is mathetes, means a learner. Now they were becoming apostles. Apostolos in the Greek, which means one who has been sent forth with a commission. You have to be a learner before you can go forth, you know. You have to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn before you can ever go out and represent him. The disciple was kind of the apprentice. The apostle was kind of the, was the ambassador who represented kings. Now in a general sense, we're all apostles. There was the 12, and they were a very specialized, unique group. But in a broad sense, in the Great Commission, he said to all of us, go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. He was commissioning all of us as apostles in a very general, broad sense to go out as ambassadors for Christ, the King, empowered by him and be given a divine message that we are to relate to this world. This was a very, though, important step in his ministry. The choosing of these men. Very important. Luke tells us in chapter 6 that he prayed all night before he called these to be his apostles. I mean, it really highlights his humanity there. 
and how that he really needed to pray before he made this very important decision. These 12 guys were going to actually be the ones he was going to turn over the reins to, primarily, after he would ascend back to his father. I mean, when you think about that, when you consider the enormity and the critical importance of the mission these men were called to fulfill, it's absolutely staggering. It's amazing to me at how ordinary they really were. Think about it. If God had said to you, look, I've got the most important mission the world has ever seen for you to help me with, and I need for you to pick 12 guys that will take this work and to bring redemption to the world through the preaching of the gospel, who would you have chosen? I mean, I would have gone for the cream of the crop, probably. I would have gone for the most intelligent, the most extraordinarily gifted men I could have found. I would have picked the most learned. The, you know, I would have just gone for the cream of the crop. When you think about it, think about it for a second. The mission that these guys were going to be asked to accomplish who did he go to for this tremendous fisherman, hated tax collector, uh, a zealot? Uh, it's almost, it would be, the natural man would look at that and laugh. It's absurd to think he would choose these guys for this kind of mission. But you see, it wasn't their intellect or their ability he was looking at. It was their attitude and their availability. Their attitude, they had already already given their hearts to him they were open to him see it was the heart attitude was right you know the bible says the eyes of the lord go to and fro about the face of the whole earth looking for someone whose heart is right that's the only prerequisite it's not how gifted you are god could care less he's going to gift give you all the power and ability you need it's never the ability it's always the attitude of the heart you see and how available you are See, your heart is right. The Lord wants to show himself strong through people whose heart is right. That's all. He's not looking for super people, supermen, just people whose hearts are right. And then those people have to be available. Remember when God said, as Isaiah had the vision of the throne of heaven in chapter 6 of his uh, book, and the Lord says, who shall we send to tell them? And what did Isaiah say? Here I am, Lord, send me. That's all. Hey, Lord, here I am. I don't know what you can do with me. It's not much to work with here. But if you got the strength, I've got the desire. If you give me the power, I'll make myself available. That's all he's asking. And I think that these men really drive home this principle. Uh, this is such a comfort to me to know that I don't have to have qualifications and abilities to be used by God, just the right heart and to be available. And God turn the world upside down with 12 of the most ordinary guys you'd ever want to meet. What was the qualification for this earth-shattering ministry? I love this. After Jesus ascended, well, before he ascended, in Acts chapter 1, he told them, look, go back to Jerusalem and wait there for the promise of the Father, for John truly baptized you with water, but you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. He was commissioning them for a ministry, but he was supplying them with the power, first of all, to conduct that ministry. He was asking them to do impossible things. He knew that. 
I mean, he was asking them to do things that were incredible, that went beyond the scope of human ability. But that's not the point. He wasn't asking them to be able, just available. He was going to supply the power, which he did. Now, it's, it's, a, it's a killer to me because on the day of Pentecost, the church is born. Peter preaches a tremendous sermon. 3,000 men get saved, plus women. Uh, the church is born, and it starts off hitting the ground running. I mean, it's, it's big on day one. It's got maybe five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people. First day. And it just snowballs from there. And, and, and Peter and John, I mean, you know, they're, they're going everywhere preaching. And in chapter 3, they run across the guy who was lame from his mother's womb by the temple gate called the Gate Beautiful. And Peter, uh, through the power of God, heals him. And a great uproar starts. And uh, people are, you know, brought to Christ. And the Sadducees and, uh, and the leadership are all bent out of shape. And so they call these guys in to stand before them. And chapter 4, verse 8 says, well, starting verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Oh, what a crime. You healed this guy. Who gave you that right to do that? Who told you you could do that? See, again, just like the Pharisees, these guys, it was beginning to step on their theology. The Sadducees were pretty quiet while Jesus was alive. You know why? Because he didn't step on their toes that much. It was the Pharisees that were the ones that really plotted to kill him. Pharisees, chief priests, and scribes. The Sadducees pretty much left him alone until after he rose from the dead and the disciples took over. Why? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees. And when the apostles went out preaching the resurrection, then they started to get in their little theological toes stepped on. And they couldn't deny something was going on because they backed it up with the power of God. And here was a lame guy who had been healed. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, he had to get that in there, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which by, by which we must be saved. Now, that was a real kick in the teeth, see? And these guys were shocked. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. There was something dynamic about these guys. Now, when it just means that they were uneducated, it simply means they had not gone to the Jerusalem School of Theology. They hadn't gone to seminary, you know. They were not trained in the scriptures like these learned so-called theologians were. And yet they couldn't deny the power. And here's what it says here. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. See, when Jesus called them in chapter 3 of Mark, he chose some and called them that they would be what? They might be with him. That is the only prerequisite for ministry that I know of. That you get saved and you spend time with Jesus in the word, in prayer, and the power of God will fill your life. And you know what? You don't need to go to seminary or Bible college and I'm not putting that down. And sometimes that's, that's a wonderful opportunity to make use of. And if God calls you to go that route, go for it. But that almost kept me out of ministry because I didn't have the degree, the, uh, you know, the education. Uh, and the Lord showed me, hey, whom... I call, I equip. And if I've called you not having any school, doesn't matter. I'll teach you. Just be with me. 
learn of me and rely on my power and there's nothing I can't do through you it's not the instrument it's the one who uses the instrument right I mean when a skillful surgeon does an operation very critical very uh, very uh, intense uh, intricate kind of an operation uh, with the heart will say and it goes really well and the patient comes out of it and it's just it's just tremendous work of healing all the people don't rush into the operating room and grab the scalpel and run out into the hall and exalt the scalpel they praise the one who has used the scalpel when God uses us God forbid that anyone should put us on a pedestal it isn't us it's the one who you it's the master who gets the glory we don't deserve any glory I'm just happy to be an instrument in his hand that's all I'll ever be and that's, that's enough and if you realize that, then you stop thinking, well, how could God use me? Well, that sounds to me like you think that you need to have certain abilities before God can use you. Not at all. Have the right heart. Be available. He'll supply the power. Be with Jesus. And uh, believe me, he'll teach you everything you need to know. And so Jesus calls these guys. And he gives them the power to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. And here's who he chose. Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. In the Greek, it's Petros, which means a little stone. See? That's going to become important later as he, uh, as he calls himself the rock and Peter the little stone. So actually, the Greek implies a chip off the old rock, basically. <laughs> Seriously. It's not just a little stone, but one that's been chipped off of a big rock. See? Uh, but he calls Simon Peter, who was the most vocal of the group. Uh, God love him. Great heart. Foot and mouth disease, yes, but... He, he, he loved the Lord very much, um, and, um, and, and God, the Lord, saw him grow as, as he walked with Jesus. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom the, the name Boanerges is given, uh, which means the sons of thunder. Jesus nicknamed these two, James and John, who are brothers. Uh, he named them sons of thunder, obviously because they were kind of a uh, uh, hot-tempered, okay, big kind of burly fisherman. In fact, it seems that uh, Peter and his brother Andrew kind of worked with James and John in a fishing business, probably that John's, uh, that James and John's father owned. Um, Peter and Andrew worked with them, but they were fishermen. James was the first martyr of the church. Uh, I'm sorry, the second martyr of the church after Stephen. Uh, he was also called James the, the Greater, probably because he was taller and uh, maybe more prominent than James the Lesser, who we're going to see in a moment. It's interesting that Herod took and killed James, though, even before Peter, indicating that possibly James, although we don't hear too much about him, was maybe the more vocal, the more bold in his witness, and uh, stepping on more of the Jews' toes than anyone else. And so Herod grabbed him first and martyred him and was going to martyr Peter but then the Lord let him out verse 18 Andrew now we know Andrew was uh, was Peter's brother and uh, you know Andrew's an interesting guy we don't read too much about Andrew uh, except every time we see him it's interesting kind of do this little uh, check this out every time we see him in scripture he's always seen bringing someone to Jesus he's always introducing somebody to Jesus Christ always very quiet, unassuming. Peter is the more vocal, the more visible. Andrew's kind of on the behind the scenes, 
But what a vital ministry. What a beautiful man. He's just quietly bringing people to Jesus, not looking for the spotlight, not looking for any kind of recognition, just bringing, introducing people to Jesus constantly. Philip, one of the apostles um, who came and introduced Nathaniel, probably his good friend to Jesus. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. A lot of these guys had nicknames and things. And so um, uh, Bartholomew means uh, son of Tolmai, which was probably you know, kind of like a, a, a name that designated his family lineage, but then he was also called Nathaniel. Matthew, of course, who was a tax collector, left all that to follow Jesus. Thomas, who who has the infamous, uh, uh, you know, the uh, being the doubting Thomas. We see uh, Thomas uh, every time he's uh, mentioned, uh, he's kind of casting the cloud, kind of the doubting guy, kind of uh, uh, just always questioning and, and doubting. James, who was the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less, probably because he was shorter and less stature than James, brother of John. Uh, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite. Unfortunately, it's a kind of a bad translation. He wasn't a Canaanite. The Greek is the, he was a Canaanian, which in, in the Greek means one who was jealous or zealous. He was, he was Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were a very fiercely nationalistic group of patriots that hated Rome with a passion. Josephus called them dagger men because they would often move through the crowds and stab Roman soldiers in the back. They were just a underground secret kind of a very, uh, very um, uh, radically nationalistic group of Jews that were determined to overthrow Rome. Now it's interesting how Jesus combined a zealot with a hated tax collector. And I think Jesus did this purposely to show us that in Christ, Jesus can break down the middle walls of partition that divide us. And it's, it's true, isn't it? In the body of Christ, let's face it, before you got saved, most of the people in this church you probably wouldn't have anything to do with. They just weren't your type, weren't the crowd that you probably would have ran with. It, it's amazing how in Christ, God, Jesus brings together people that probably, they have nothing in common. And, and, and if it were not for Christ, they would probably never hang around with each other and, and probably not even like each other, maybe even hate one another. But in Jesus, it's just beautiful how that we're just family. Uh, he breaks down those walls of prejudice and hatred. And he did so with Matthew and Simon. And Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. Iscariot means man of Kerioth, which was a town of in Judah. So he was he was Judas, a man from Kerioth, which was, a, as I said, a town in Judah. Now, here it is. Here are the men that Jesus Christ has chosen for this incredible mission. And it seems that Judas was the most polished and cultured out of the group, one that they trusted implicitly. They let him be the treasurer. Um, and that was, a, was a, an honored thing. And so probably he was a man that, you know, in the eyes of the other Jews, was well-respected, maybe a man of culture of education, you know, polished a little more than the others who were just basically fishermen and other kind of, you know, ordinary guys. But as I look at these men, I can't help but laugh when I think of what kind of guys the world would have chosen to be leaders in the church. Think These guys are so opposite those that the people of the world would have probably chosen for this kind of momentous ministry. Uh, it's, it's amazing. In fact, um, I've read this before. I'll read it to you tonight again. 
kind of a humorous, uh, obviously a fictional letter that kind of sums up, really, had Jesus have, had gone the way of the world, had Jesus had picked these guys according to the world's standards, what the world would have thought about these guys. This is called a memorandum to Jesus, son of Joseph, Woodcrafter Carpenter Shop, Nazareth, from Jordan Management Consultants of Jerusalem. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our staff psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff's opinion that most of the nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and and uh, responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely yours, Jordan Management Consultants. And I think that that is so typical of how the world would look at these guys, you know? Ordinary guys, the opposite of what you would choose for this kind of a ministry. Uh, this is a ministry that's going to impact the whole world with the truth of God. Uh, when Jesus is taken back, is, is returns back to his father, these 12 men were going to basically carry on the ministry he had begun. That's why it was of critical importance that he pray, because he wasn't going to make this decision based on outward appearances, but upon the attitudes of the heart. And he wanted to make sure that he was in line with his father with regard to the men that the father had chosen. Part of the wisdom of Jesus' ministry was not only to minister to the multitudes, which he did, but he also spent time discipling his men. In fact, in the beginning, he spent more time probably ministering to the multitudes, but as he got closer to the cross and closer to the time when he would be taken away from them, he began to withdraw from the crowds and turn himself almost exclusively toward the twelve to begin to really pour himself into them because he knew that after his departure, the the, uh, the mantle would be passed to them to continue the work that he had begun. There is a um, fictional account of Jesus Christ returning back to heaven, and the angel Gabriel appears to him, uh, comes to him and says, Lord, we're so happy that you're back. Um, is it true that you died for the sins of these people? And Jesus said, yes, I did. Is it true that you're offering to them now everlasting life? He says, yes, I am. He says, well, how are you going to do that? Now that you're gone, he said, well, I have chosen 12 men and I have put it upon their shoulders to carry on the work that I've begun. And he said, well, 
what if they fail? What, what if they aren't faithful in declaring the message that you have given them to declare? And Jesus said, well, I have no other plan. I mean, they're the ones. If they fail, uh, I have no other plan to go by. That uh, is their mission now. Now, of course, it's fictional. And on the one hand, we know that there's no way Jesus was going to let these men fail because it wasn't their strength but his power that was sustaining them. But it does point out a good a, a point, and that is that we are now the body of Christ on this earth. We are his hands, his feet, his mouth, his eyes, you know, and we are to continue on the work that he has begun. And we better make sure that we continue on exactly the same way he, be, he began. If we're representing him, we better not misrepresent him in the way that we approach people and handle people and, and so on. It's very important that we see in Jesus our prototype. Now very quickly, why did he choose, first of all, such insignificant, really, ordinary guys for this work? Well, we've read these passages before, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This doesn't only apply to these 12, but it applies to all of us. Where Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he said, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, here we are, to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. See, that's why God has chosen us, the insignificant, the ordinary, because he doesn't want our abilities, our intellects, uh, our, if he chose extraordinary people to do his work, very gifted, super intelligent people, then others would look at them and say, well, that's why the church is growing because look at the, wow, look at these guys. No, God wants to get the glory. So that's good news for most of, all of us who are just ordinary folk because it means that he turns to us first. He has chosen, of course, and does use some very intelligent people and gifted people. But for the most part, we're just ordinary people that he has chosen from various walks of life. Some of us were despised. Some of us were nothing in the world's eyes. We're foolish, uh, weak. But he does this that no flesh of glory in his presence. That all of us, uh, you know, verse 31, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in much weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Even the great apostle Paul says he was nothing, really. I mean, he was really not a gifted speaker. He wasn't a, uh, a persuasive orator. Uh, no, Apollos was, and, and God did choose him. Not that God doesn't choose any who are gifted. But the great apostle Paul, look what he accomplished for the Lord. He says, you know, when I came to you people in Corinth, I was terrified. Uh, I didn't come as a great orator. I just came to you with simple words, and the power of God did the work. So, and that really is, that's it in a nutshell. Just come and present the gospel. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What treasure? The power of God, the glory of God. In earthen vessels, a clay pot, that's us. And our human bodies rest the glory of God. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul said, abides in us. That's a lot of power. There is nothing that God can't accomplish through us. 
and he wants to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, after Jesus chose the, the apostles, he gave them special power. They were, the twelve were a special group of men that had a very unique and specialized ministry. They became the foundations upon which the church was built, apostles and prophets. But because the New Testament had not been given yet, it didn't exist when Jesus first called these men, he spoke to them after he ascended, and they began to write the New Testament and all. He gave to them divine revelation, doctrinal revelation, that they then taught the church. It later on was written down and became the New Testament, but they were the foundation upon which the church was built, see? And later on, there were certain qualifications that people looked to to confirm whether or not a man was an apostle. And Paul said that he was qualified to be an apostle because, number one, 1 Corinthians 9, 1, he had seen the risen Christ. That was one of the prerequisites. You had to have, had to have seen the risen Christ. He saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Secondly, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 12, Paul said, are not, again, defending his apostleship, are not the works of an apostle wrought through me? I mean, haven't you seen miracles and healings and various signs and wonders done through me, which confirms my apostleship? So you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. You had to have that special supernatural power given by God that he gave to the apostles to work miracles which confirmed that the words that they spoke came from God. Even as Jesus, when he uh, spoke, he also performed miracles. And at one point he said, look, if you don't believe the words I say to you, then believe me for the sake of the works. I mean, it's not like I'm not backing up these things with the power of God, see? So there was, uh, you know, things that they looked at to confirm whether or not these men were apostles. Very important ministry, very unique ministry. They were the foundation that the church was built upon. Jesus Christ was the chief cornerstone. But I believe that after the foundation has been laid, now the structure has been going up and we as living stones are being built together into a holy habitation for God, a living temple. Once the foundation is laid, it doesn't have to be laid anymore. I believe that apostles and prophets have passed off the scene now. You know, people claim today to be apostles. Have they seen the risen Christ? Are the works of an apostle wrought through them? If not, it seems like to me you don't qualify. Okay, now, I don't know if they've seen the risen Christ. Maybe he has appeared to them. I don't know. Uh, maybe some of them have a unique spiritual ability. I don't know. I, I doubt it. I kind of feel that the Lord laid the foundation. It's been laid. New Testament was completed. They served a specialized ministry for a certain period of time in the early church period, first century. And now the foundation is laid and God is building the temple with living stones. We're being saved. We're benefiting still from the apostles' ministry, of course, as we study the scriptures that they have left us. But the office of apostle and prophets, I believe, has passed off the scene. Gift of prophecy, yes, still in operation. But be very careful if you claim to be a prophet in the sense of an office because there was some very strict guidelines you had to adhere to uh, and there was no room for error you said anything and God's name didn't come to pass in the Old Testament God says take him out and kill him so I don't think I'd want that job description unless I was awful sure God had called me to be a prophet now I think that they've passed off the scene and gift of prophecy yes God still speaks to his church through various people but it's different from being a prophet in the office sense 
Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out and laid hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. He's ministering so much, he hasn't even got time to eat. His own people, his family, who thought he was nuts, really. You know, he had, he had four brothers of the gospel. Matthew tells us their names. Judas, Simon, uh, James, and uh, Joses, yeah. And, his, they had, and he had sisters, which were, they're not named. But two of them, okay, uh, Jude and James, went on to become believers. Maybe they all got converted, but it was after his death and resurrection that we know at least two got saved, James and Jude. They wound up writing epistles. James became the head pastor of the church in Jerusalem. But at this point, they all thought he was crazy. Why? Because he's giving himself so fully to ministry. It's interesting. Most of you already know that my oldest son, Phil, is chosen to, by the grace of God, he's prayed and has decided to leave uh, Arizona State University where he was studying civil engineering to become a full-time, full-time pastor. So he is going to be starting at the Bible College next fall. Well, there are people in the family, God love them and they mean well, they're devastated. They're just devastated. Why would you give up being an engineer to be a pastor? How could you do that? Are you out of your mind? Do you realize pastors make no money? What kind of life is that? Engineering, that's a good job. There's stability, there's, there's a future in that. But when the Lord touches your heart, it says, this is, I'm calling you to ministry. Nothing else matters. And people will think you're out of your mind. But you will never be more in your mind than when you use your life to serve God fully. So Jesus is definitely not out of his mind. And verse 22 says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He is Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen against, up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless the, he first binds the strong man. And he will then plunder uh, his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemies against, blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, uh, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Very simple. How can I be working under the power of Satan if I am conquering Satan's territory? If I'm releasing people from Satan's control, how can Satan be working through me? Satan doesn't divide his own kingdom, right? He said, but be careful, because you're getting dangerously close to committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, some people say, well, Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was something that they only could do in Jesus' day. You can't do it today. I disagree. You say, well, what is it? It's not any one sin. How was Jesus doing these miracles and casting out these demons? Remember we saw last week how he went to John the Baptist, was baptized. When he came up out of the Jordan River, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And then he began his public ministry in Nazareth by saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the good news and so on. Jesus could have done miracles and cast out demons through his own power, but see, he would have blown his mission as a perfect man. 
So he had to avail himself of the same power that we have, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit of God was working through him. And the Spirit of God, Jesus said in John's Gospel, always works through us to testify to people about Jesus. So when they said he's got a demon, they were saying the Spirit of God, who was really working through Christ to bear witness that he was, the, in fact, the Son of God, the Messiah, that they would accept him and be saved, they were ascribing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. And the only sin that will keep you out of heaven is what? The sin of rejecting Christ. Does that happen at any one given time? Is there any one sin that will cause that to happen? No. It's a process that takes place over the course of your life. Where the Spirit of God is working to convict your heart of sin, to convince you that Jesus is true, that He's the Son of God, and so on. But you reject it, you reject it. So you're rejecting, rejecting, rejecting until finally you pass the point of spiritual return. Your heart is so hard that you no longer can believe anymore. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, look, you're getting dangerously close to committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Later on in John's Gospel, chapter 12, it says that they had passed that point, And it says now they could not believe. They had hardened their hearts so much they had committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And now their eternity was set. And finally, it says in verse 31, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. Now, if you've got a Roman Catholic background, this is a very interesting section. I don't mean that flippantly. I mean it seriously. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, looking for you. Now, Roman Catholics are taught that Mary is this exalted person who we need to pray to because we're not worthy to come to God directly. We need, you know, you want to ask an important person for a favor, you don't go to them. Get in and go with their mom because they won't refuse her. They might refuse you, but they'll not refuse their mom. She asks for you, right? So you got to go to Mary because she intercedes, okay? But Jesus did not make a big fuss about his mother. He loved her. But notice, when they said, look, your mother and your brothers are outside, he didn't say, my mother... Hail Mary, full of grace? Oh, open up the door. Let her in. No, he didn't say that. He said, look, who is my mother or my brothers? He looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother. And in Matthew's gospel, he said, my sisters and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. What is he saying? He is saying that the bond in the family of God is deeper and stronger than the bond that we even have with our physical, earthly families. You can attest to that. There are people that are your blood relatives you hardly know. And there are people that up until a few weeks ago maybe were complete strangers, but now you're both brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ, and there's that instant bond have you experienced this when you've gone traveling somewhere? Maybe you've traveled halfway around the world and you've met another believer from a totally different culture and race. And there's instant fellowship. You feel like you've known them all your life. There's a bond there that you can, it's, it's palpable. You can feel it. It's the bond that happens when we are bound by the Spirit in the family of God. Now, what does that mean? That we don't honor our mothers and fathers? Of course we do. We should. 
Does that mean we shouldn't love our earthly families? Yes, as difficult as that is sometimes. It just means that the family of God supersedes even my earthly family. I mean, I am closer to many of you than I am with some people in my own family. I, I love to be around the, the family of God. We To worship together, to fellowship, to bear each other's burdens and so on. It's just, it's a wonderful experience. It's refreshing. I feel energized when, I, when I'm, it's just a wonderful thing. There has been many a night I've driven over to church having been beat up by the devil or something else, feeling completely dry, completely beaten down, not even knowing why I was even coming. I mean, what are you going to, what can I even impart to anyone tonight? I'm just completely a basket case. I mean, I just want to go and hide somewhere. I'm feeling so rotten and so miserable. But out of obedience, I'll come and just say, Lord, whatever you can do, you know. And I'll come and I'll spend time with you guys and we'll worship together and open the word and afterwards fellowship. And I've left here feeling completely energized, completely reinvigorated. It's just because the family of God, we need each other. That's why the Bible says don't forsake the fellowship of the saints. There's something that happens when we come together. As weak and as beaten down as we are, when we come together and get plugged into one another corporately, through times of worship and Bible study and fellowship, we somehow feed on each, off each other's strength. It's a wonderful and important thing that happens. See? And, and that's why I encourage people, don't forsake the fellowship of the saints. Well, I've been, but I've been so feeling so down lately. I just don't feel it. That's why you need to come to church. Don't isolate yourself from the body. Be there. Let the body of Christ minister to you. The Spirit of God works through the body. You peel yourself away from the body, you're going to, like a cell, peeled away from the human body and set up by itself somewhere, it's going to die. We need to stay plugged in, in fellowship. So next week we'll continue following Jesus around, the ultimate servant, hopefully learning from his ways. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you and thank you for your blessings, Lord, for your goodness. And Lord, it's wonderful to follow our Savior around, to see how he reached out to people, to see the love he had, the compassion, how he was the quintessential servant of all. And I pray, Lord, that you will work that in our hearts, that we will be the servant of all. And that, Lord, we would realize that if we feed our flesh, the flesh will grow strong and the spirit will grow weak. And if we want to feel strong spiritually, if we want to sense the power of the Spirit working in and through our lives, we must feed the Spirit. Help us to stop fighting the flesh, Lord. We can't win. But if we feed the spiritual man, the Spirit of God will energize our spirit and we will be victorious over the flesh. Help us, Lord. Give us grace to make fasting a regular part of our Christian walk, and as we fast, that we might seek you in prayer and word. And Lord, give us the grace to do that consistently, that we might see our spiritual man grow strong, that we might then see ourselves walking in the Spirit more consistently and not giving in to the lusts of the flesh. Praise you, Lord. We thank you. What a joy it is to study your word and to learn from the Master all the things that we need we thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.